Hello and welcome back to the Public Eye podcast, a six-part series of podcasts brought to you by Granite Exchange. My name is Sarah Travers and throughout this series, I've been speaking with local entrepreneurs and business owners to learn more about how their companies have come to be, to gain insight into their growth and to find out how they continue to innovate. A real treat today because uh, I am joined in the podcast studio by Michael McKeown, founder of Matt Darcy and Co Limited, as well as a lot more. Michael, you are very, very welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Sarah. And could I begin by saying that you are doing the most wonderful service for social history. I have listened to the earlier podcasts and I only wish that I could listen to entrepreneurs of 100 years ago. And what you're doing now is laying down an historical record for these people, for their, uh, what would we call their them? Their legacy, for Their legacy and their descendants. But you're also providing all of the information required for someone writing a history of commercial activity in Newry in another hundred years. I hadn't thought of it that way. So imagine if somebody um, from... 20, what, what year would that be? That would be 21, 21. Yes, 21, 21 is listening to this now. Um, hello and thank you for listening. So we're in a little time capsule really. We are and it's the subject is very high in my mind because I am, have embarked on writing the 200 years of commercial history of Newry. You have indeed. Oh my goodness, you're, you're, you're fascinated by Newry and, and its surrounding uh, area. I am and they... What I like is, it's uh, to me, it's a bit like being allowed to do your own uh, excavation. I am finding things that people had lost and forgotten about. So I just love finding out more and more interesting history of Newry. And when I mention the 200 years, it's because I foolishly told people that I had discovered letters from the Chamber of Commerce of Newry in 1820, whereas the accepted wisdom was that the Chamber of Commerce had been established in 1893. And the foolishness of my action was that I have now been given the task of writing the history of the Chamber of Commerce to celebrate its bicentenary. Oh my goodness, and I'm sure you've uh, dug up and found some incredible stories and incredible characters. I have. Well, the beginning of it, uh, it, it may have been a chamber before 1820, but the, the, these letters were letters written by the chairman of the chamber, to the Chief Secretary of Ireland in Dublin Castle, beginning to petition for the extension of the Newry Canal out towards the sea. And in the last few years, I lived through a similar thing, being also the President of the Chamber of Commerce of Newry, asking the government to provide the funds to build a relief road across that very same canal. Goodness me, what a coincidence. Unbelievable. So what would the context have been, what was happening in... Ireland, I suppose, at that time. Well, what was happening in Newry was that Newry was uh, becoming one of the forefronts of the Industrial Revolution. And today, you could say we're one of the forefronts of the Information Revolution. We have got one of the largest uh, indigenous IT companies situated here, First Derivatives. And that will bring its its own spin-offs. So the comparison is is we were both in ages of revolution, and we were both represented by very able people, and I'm not saying I'm the able person that represented it in this period, because uh, back in those days, you were probably allowed to be the president for multiple years. Nowadays, you're allowed to be the president for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think the biggest change is democracy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm all for, for democracy. Let's just talk a little bit about you because I know we're here today to talk about your latest business, which is all about whiskey. But there's so much more that I want to find out. Um, I'm from the North Coast. Uh, so people listening to this who live in Newry will just know you. And I apologise. I need to get under the skin, literally, of Michael McKeown. So first of all, you come from a family... Of 11. I, I do, Sarah, but I'm not from Newry. No. I'm only here. You're a blow-in. I'm a blow-in. I arrived here in the autumn of 1995 and had sold a business situated in Lurgan where I was brought up. Uh, I like to describe myself as being from North Armagh because we variously lived along the, the shores of Loch Ney. My parents, uh, my uh, my mother's side were have been on the Loch Ness Basin. Uh, if people are familiar with the balancing lakes at Craigavon, that's my mother's family land underneath the water. Oh my goodness, underneath the water. Yeah, we were vested from uh, where we lived nearby that. Part of the family lived there, but we lived on the higher ground uh, nearby. And when I was 20, we were vested from there. And my mother built back where my father came from, which is a place called Anachmore, Porter Down, mm-hmm. further uh, west along the the, the, um, the, the Loch Ness Basin. So we all went to live there for a while. But we had already had very strong commercial r- routes in Lurgan. So as we got married, we went back to Lurgan, or some of us were in Porter Down, and some of us stayed in Anachmore. So we became a spread out family across that region from Anaphmore, Moyd area, right across to Lurgan, uh, across to um, the Antrim uh, side, through up near Ahagallan and so on. So that's where I was, and I thought it was the most idyllic place in the world. That's because I lived there. Yes, <laughs> that's what you knew. <laughs> and because I lived there. And because you lived there, <laughs> I see. I um, see. And uh, uh, at 1992... In September of 92, um, I had just been going through a painful divorce, as, as they are, there's none of them the easy. And at a family wedding, I spied a girl from Dundalk, and the rest became history. And she was a teacher in Dundalk, and I carried on living in Lurgan for the, fo- the next three years until I sold the business there. We had what was people used to call a computer business, mm-hmm. but... You need to know a bit about the history of, of technology to know that the internet did not arrive until 1996-97, by which time I had sold out my online business. Right, you were way ahead of the Well, game. I was well way ahead and missed the curve. Missed, the cur- missed what um, you needed. Didn't miss it entirely because uh, in going backwards, to, I'm making this all a bit out of context, but back in 1983, I had spent about 10 years as a retail insurance broker, uh, which the usual pun is that you fell into it by accident, but I did. I'll take you back to that if I if, if have enough time. But I had an, uh, a knowledge of computing that was unusual at the time, which I had acquired in a previous career in the family business. Step back in, but by 83, I had began to see this potential for online and I literally gave up 
my own position, brought in um, my employee, who at the time I had recruited in my normal way. It was somebody I knew. He was a school friend of mine from the age of three or four. I brought him into the insurance business, and after a few months, I called him up into my office, and I said, uh, Gordon, would you sit down here for a moment? Oh, no, over in my seat, Gordon. So he sat in my seat, and I says, goodbye. And? You're in charge. I have an idea that I want to develop. So I started so you were off. off to the next thing and left per Gordon. Mm. And how did Gordon cope? Gordon retired last year <gasps> after 30-odd or 40 years of a very successful... Uh, <laughs> career as an insurance broker. My goodness me. So what, did you move on then to crash service? No, no. I moved to what's called a Expert Information Systems. We had a, an, on, an online system developed for the uh, finance world. Right. So I started off by taking a mortgage of £15,000 on my private house. And 30 months later, 30 months later, I had accumulated losses of £1,730,000. How can you get that far in 15,000? Well, the answer was I got about half a million of grants. I got uh, five, six hundred thousand pounds worth of shareholders. I had 180 shareholders recruited. And my board of directors were that I had selected at the outset, well, not at the outset, they became initial shareholders. They guaranteed the bank for another half million or so. And by the end of uh, 1986, we were running onto the rocks because no one understood an online system. No, you're still uh, too and far ahead. We had about 400 users that w- that were paying us about maybe 10,000 pounds in the month, and we were spending 30 or 40,000 pounds in wages. Oh. And I was rescued by a f- two events. One was that the government. Was uh, of the day created what is known as the Financial Services Act. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that you get now. Every time you buy a piece of insurance, you get 12 sheets of paper telling you that you're protected. Up until that date, there was no protection. So when that act came out on the 1st of January 1987, it required people who were advising on life insurances and mortgages to give their best advice. Now, the terrible condemnation out of that is that, that there was an admission that you weren't getting best advice. Right. However, in my time in the insurance business, I had applied the same principles that I still carry on today and that carried me on through crashes. Is look after every single consumer. And this applies particularly in a place like Northern Ireland where everybody is everybody else's cousin. Oh, yes. And... You, you must go on, on, on your goodwill. But I discovered in, later on that this was actually a, a, one of my birth traits, but I'll come back to that in a moment for you. <laughs> so keep so sticking. So the FSA, what did the, the FSA, the Financial Services Act, tell me how that got you well, out of jail. Well, because I had developed a system that looked after my clients. Ah. And this, when I was trying to sell it, particularly in England, they didn't want to buy it mm-hmm. because it was looking after the client instead of looking after the provider of the products. And the providers did their best to stop me, tried not to cooperate with me, made sure we didn't get information to put into the information system. And I got around that by uh, the best of luck. A man from Lisbon, 
was the head of the Bank of Scotland Insurance Services. And he helped me get information from reluctant providers because they had to provide it to him. So he was able to get me started. To, so I got sufficient information to get the systems running. Oh, my goodness. And... The so it was all about compliance, really, and the, the, I, I had which is what everybody well, it, it was. Now. It was written in the Belfast Telegraph at the time um, when we announced how we move forward. We didn't. Uh, we didn't move forward on our own. This is a very important commercial aspect of the story. By the time we had uh, accumulated that type of losses, the institutions who needed to deal with us couldn't deal with us because we were so insecure. And we were in Northern Ireland in the midst of the Troubles. Right. I used to get uh, people coming over from the institutions in England and they would say, well, I'll meet you at uh, Nuts Corner or Aldergrove, whichever we called it in those days. And they says, would you have the flak jacket for, flak jacket for me? Right. It was just literally like that. And they told their wives that they were going to London or Birmingham and they'd arrive with me in Belfast. Uh, in Belfast Airport, and I would bring them up and down uh, to Lurgan. So one of those confided me with me uh, in October that year. He said, Michael, we would love your system, and we know what's going to happen when the act comes in, but I can't deal with you. If you go uh, into liquidation, I could have spent £2 million buying the equipment, another £2 million to train the staff, and then you go bankrupt on me. So I waited until the end of the year and we had a very rocky end of the year. I met one of the executives of Ledgew in a car park in Belfast on Christmas Eve and he gave me a cheque for £27,000 to pay the wages. Now, I had to give him a piece of paper to get his piece of paper. On my piece of paper was a letter from British Telecom saying that they intended to go into business with me in the, new, in the new year. And how had you done that? Well, I spent months going between them, American Telephone and Telegraph, uh, the Guardian Royal Exchange Insurance Company. I was waiting for several months for the general accident in Perth to agree to become an investor. And they, it became more important to the, the provider of the technology, British Telecom, than it did to the insurance Companies. So that was a really a golden ticket, a golden piece of paper a that you golden over piece there. of paper and it changed um, everything. And when we got past Christmas, um, I was so driven at the time that I uh, went to British Telecom and I said, "Right, well, that piece of paper got me past Christmas, but your lawyers are going to take two or three months to you sort don't this." Don't have two or three months. I don't have two or three months, and I came home with a hundred thousand pounds. And Did you know you'd always ha always had this entrepreneurial spirit? You always got things done. Other people <clears throat> would have quit when they could. Well, I've never understood quitting, you see. Right. Um, Where does that come from? Well, back to my favourite subject in life, my parents. Mm. My father never quit. My father had a most horrible accident in 1953. And... I, th I often quote this to say this is part of my inspiration for crash. How you'd say, well, because it was to do with a crash, but that's not why it was an inspiration. It's because it was to do with law. And what happened was my father had, in 1946, at the end of the war, set up a wholesale wines and spirit business. He had 
originally been a barman himself. Have bought, he was born on a little bog farm at Annaghmore, Portadown, and his father died when he was twelve. So as soon as he was able to go to work, he got a job in a bar in Portadown. And uh, to cut the story short, anyway, during the war, he had um, taken over uh, my mother's mother's bar in the town of Lurgan and had made a little fortune from the Yanks <laughs> because there was a, Yank, a Yankee camp yeah. at the bottom of the street. Right. And during that war, he was found it difficult to keep going because he had no supplies. Because the pub had been closed in 1938, he <laughs> couldn't get... To give them. He couldn't... Well, he, what he did was he went to other places and he bought their quotas from them at perhaps retail price, but the Yanks were paying double retail price. So at the end of the war, they had done very well, but he decided he was not going to be beholden to anyone else to supply him. And that's another trait that comes out in me, I know. Self-sufficient. Um, yeah, Crash is a very self-sufficient business with nobody else's IT in it. You know, we have, I, I keep saying we, it's not my business anymore. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I sold it to my son. son Jonathan, and we've but, spoken to him about it. <laughs> but anyway, um, my father was in the middle of a, building a, a, a good business up and he was in Belfast collecting uh, whiskey and wine from the bond stores in barrels. And he was coming down the Lisbon Road, and it's very easy to visualise because this happened just coming up to the King's Hall on the Lisbon Road. And there were tram lines there at the time. So my father was in a little Ford van, and coming towards him was a truck from a refrigeration company. And the truck got stuck in the tram lines. My father had nowhere to go. So he got squashed between the barrels and the truck. He was in the city hospital for almost a year, broken ribs, both his legs broken, and they were waiting day by day for him to die. Uh, But he he recovered. And when he was in in the hospital bed, a supplier of wine sent him a book that was called Reach for the Sky by Douglas Bader, an Air Force commander who had lost both of his legs in World War II, but had... Eight years later, was playing golf. Isn't that wonderful? Um, my father took this as inspiration. And the next part of which why resilient and don't give up is um, he eventually, after a couple of years, was awarded £6,000 by the Northern Ireland High Court. Okay. But the insurance company, dare I say it with anything other than the highest respect, <laughs> the insurance company appealed and had the award reduced to £2,000 in the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal. Oh. And my father said, I did not go through this suffering. No. And his, lo- his lawyer advised him to take it any further would mean the House of Lords, and that the costs, if he lost, were £6,000. <laughs> and please tell me, he, he went on. took the case to the House of Lords <gasps> and he won. I have recently uncovered some of the reports about that. Um, one of the reports was very interesting and very inspiring. And what it said was um, the insurance company's defence was that the accounts of Mr. McCone's business from 1952 to 1956 showed remarkable growth and that therefore no compensa- compensation was appropriate. Oh. And the Lord who was judging it said... How much better would it have done if Mr. McCone had been on his feet? Oh my goodness, isn't that brilliant? Wasn't that brilliant? Isn't that brilliant? And what, what what was the... I mean, that was obviously incredible. 
what damage was caused in the accident? Did he walk again? He did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we walked with a bit of a limp in that. Uh, he had an irrelevancy to you, but it's like historic to say to you. He had calipers, mm-hmm. which were the structures that you stuck to the side of your leg and uh, held you up straight. Mm-hmm. And he, he did walk, and uh, before he died in the, in the 1960s, he brought about an early death. For the last two or three years, he had some heart attacks, and he and I used to play golf. So he, he did walk again, and uh, he was a fanatic about football. Mm-hmm. So we went to football matches. He was a director of Gnaven Football Club. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time that it allowed him, he would, he would have been the chairman of the GAA club, but he'd, he, had, he just loved all sorts of sports. Wonderful man, he sounds like, um, and obviously the entrepreneurial spirit, the resilience, the never, never give up, um, comes mm-hmm. from him. I'm sure your mother, though having eleven children too, that's pretty resilient as well. Right, we <laughs> have so much still to get through. Um, so we're st- we're at the business now. What did you call your online business that uh, British well, Telecom we, had? We come up with a wonderful name called Interax. Oh. Why didn't we wait and call it Internet? But it was it was right on the ball, Interax. And then and everything went well with that? It did. Well, it, it did with British Telecom. And um, I, the rest, I would, would take you that other hour to tell you the Geoffrey the Jeffrey Archer story of how I was shafted by uh, a, a, a high-ranking executive in British Telecom. Right. Who... who who worked to uh, minimise our position while he was actually being recruited by an opposition. Hmm. A Geoffrey Archer story for another time. This podcast is sponsored by Granite Legal Services, a niche business and immigration law practice located in the heart of Newry City. Granite Legal Services provides legal advice to both individuals and companies alike across a wide range of industries from employment, commercial or corporate law matters to immigration law. Granite Legal Services focuses on providing legally sound, practical advice to its clients. To get in touch, visit www.granitelegalservices.co.uk or email us at inquiries at granitelegalservices.co.uk today. So you've come across a lot of people, um, good and bad, in your time. Um, yeah. People are definitely your thing. I know you were you were talking about that. Bring us on to crash services. Well, how crash came about was um, after that episode of British Telecom, we had to rebuild our business, expert information systems, and uh, we turned it into um, an online uh, tele brokerage. And we had real marketing success again inside a year. I recruited Mercedes, BMW, Porsche, Saab, Mazda, <laughs> Ford, uh, Abbey National Business Society, all as clients who were directing phone calls to us. And we built a telecenter in Lurgan based on that. And we went to a height of about 120 operators, That's you know, operators amazing. in there, yeah. all based on the original, uh, what was to be an online system. But the internet hadn't arrived. It was, it was exactly what we had was like what Go Compare is now. Yeah. Only I have to say it with as much modesty as I can sum, they haven't caught up yet. No. No. So we got into the same sort of a bind, however, in early 95, in that we couldn't um, get enough growth. And the reason was that the market was uh, for 
for uh, personal lines insurances was already captured by the AA and other big brokers. So I began to, to look around, where could I find one of these brokers who would uh, associate with me? And um, I kept ringing people all over England and Ireland. And I made a phone call to one in Halifax, and these people had about 100 shops. And uh, I spoke to the marketing director, and he says to me, that's very timely, you should ring me. He says, explain more to me. So half an hour later, he says, I tell you what, I'm coming over to see you. So the following Monday afternoon, he and three other board directors from this uh, very large company, they they were subsidiary to one of the big insurance companies, and they ran what was called the Provident Capital Company, which is p- people in the past knew the man from the Provi came on a Friday night to collect loans. So they did loans as well. Anyway, the four of them arrived on the Monday afternoon, um, and at 4.30 they'd bought us out. Really? Mm. That's how it happens. Oh, my goodness. And again, I was running into a slippery slope. At that stage, we were losing about 50000 a month and needed needed to get a new supply and I wasn't looking for a buyer as such. And then that's how it it happened. You decided, so you're very good at making decisions very quickly. Yeah, sometimes you know you need to move. You had to move. And where did that business go? Did that do well for them? It it did well. Um, I love to tell the story. I sold the same business twice. (laughs) A number of years later, they decided to move on and I sold it to another company. So you were still, you still had a finger in the pie? No, I didn't. Oh, how? What happened was some of the employees rang me six or seven years later and says, Michael, we think these people might be closing us down. And I says, over my dead body. Oh, my goodness. So I went to them in Halifax and I said, look, this is a box of jewels you have. You might not recognize it, but I built this box of jewels and I'd find someone else who would like these jewels. (laughs) And six months later I did and... I uh, got myself a £110,000 commission <laughs> for selling the same business <laughs> twice. Oh, how do I channel some of that? I tell you, Michael, you'll have to give me some tips. Right, crash services then. Please tell so me that was next. what happened was, I then thought, ah, what could I do? I have just signed an agreement not to be selling insurance, not to be developing computer programs for insurance. What could I do? But I know all these people in this industry. Mm. Ah, do you know what? They've left a little back door here. I could go into claims, but that's a simplified version of it. Yeah. One of my many brothers was one of Britain's largest claim solicitors this time. It's all about who you know. Well, I know him well. You do. And he introduced me to people in England who had the ideas that looked like crash, but I have to say, with less modesty than ever, no, there's nothing actually like crash. At all. No, the other people who go into this business or businesses like Crash had different motivations. Money? Putting the money before the client, mm-hmm. basically. And in England, it, it was about um, getting referral fees uh, and making phone calls. Have you been in an accident? Oh, like, we have never worst. indulged in any of that in Crash. What I did is I went back to where I had been with both that computer system and my previous business, which was, I'm going to look after the consumer. So crash is about looking after the individual against Mr. Big. Mm. That's what it's... And often in that arena, the individual is so small and we have been known in Northern Ireland to have a claims culture, so Mm -hmm. all geared towards, I better not take this any further, or what will people think of me? Yeah. 
Well, that was not that didn't didn't bother me because uh, I didn't start on that premise that oh. I I needed people to make claims. Um, and people needed to make claims too because, like your father, they were entitled to things. They're entitled to it. And uh, I often say about myself when I was in the previous uh, in-between career in the retail insurance business, which came after my career in the family business as an accountant and a computer <laughs> programmer designer, um, they, um, what I often said was, I've never sold anything in my life. Anything I was doing, somebody came and asked me for it. And when I was in the insurance world, I did not need to go out to sell. People came and says, Michael, I have to insure this. Michael, I've bought a house. Michael, I've bought a pub. Michael, I have six employees out on diggers. Michael, I have... I never went out to sell anything. And then when we went into crash, you can't sell somebody an accident. I, no, I didn't no, cause it. No. <laughs> so so what, what I discovered was that they needed a lot of help. And... Uh, more so then, and to a lesser degree now, because the insurance world has had to react to us, people were left to their own ends. And I remembered back to my time when I was in the retail insurance business, where people would have come in to us, reported an accident, and six weeks later would have come in and said, I heard nothing. And you said, right, I'll ring up for you. There was no idea at that time that the broker was actually responsible to help you after the accident because you were dealing with an assessor from the insurance company, he was dealing with a repairman mm-hmm. and we had really no idea that people were, were floundering about. Mm-hmm. The service level was, I, I can't say zero, it was very, very, very low percentage. So what Christ gave was the opportunity to help people and one of my earliest cases I love to talk about is that a lady from Kilkeel, um was referred to me one time in the, er- in the first year or so. And I said, right, I can uh, get your car repaired and I can send you out another car. She says, another car is no good to me. I, I can't move. I says, oh. And she literally started to cry on the phone. She says, I have four children under the age of five and I'm in this house and I can't mind them. And I said, I'll not give her a name now. I said, look, you look for home help, and I look for home help, and I'll pay the home help. Right. Something completely unheard of that an insurance company would never dream of doing. I'm sure she couldn't believe it, that well, somebody wanted to help her. Well, the gift I got from her father afterwards, I was told, it was a man from Annalong would not give this to his best friend, and it was crab's toes. <laughs> I was told by the man I said he's giving me crabs toes and I don't know what to do with them he says he gave you crabs toes oh my goodness it was like him giving me the crown jewels, the crown jewels totally. so I do know I appreciate it but, oh. it but it also allowed me then with with the man who introduced it to show him the, the degree to which we would go to help somebody and that's where the culture of crash has been and so it wasn't just about getting money after an accident, it was about providing whatever help was needed? Yes. Can I bring you back to the time I was in, in retail insurance? I never knew what the commission was. I never asked. I never looked. And you know what happened? At the end of the year, we had more commission than we had the previous year. Right. There's a lot of people could learn a lot of things from that. Well, and a lot of people that might be sceptical over that. They might well be, but I'm telling you it's my truth. Um, one of the things that I did learn, um, well, I, I had known that my father's business, you, 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 my father helped a lot of people into business. Um, my eldest brother died last year, 
and a family, very successful family in the spirit business. Three of them came across to me at the back of the end of the funeral and they said, we want to tell you we would never have been anywhere without your father and your brother. And that went back 50 years. Okay. In a Matt Darcy context, I contacted someone six, four months ago to ask him to help me support to get a license. Sorry, sorry. Right. I contacted someone, I contacted someone to ask them to give me support to, uh, to get a license uh, to wholesale. And the first thing he said to me is, 70 years ago, my father started in the pub business. Your father gave him six months credit. That's all of these things, all as you say, everybody's a cousin of somebody, or it's you know people remember and they know what somebody did. It's all about who it, you are as a person. Sir, it's the definition of goodwill. Yeah, there's so much, Michael, to get through, really. But so how well. do you, I mean? Crash has grown and grown. Um, how many employees now across? Well, how many? Um, I know the, it's the not yours the, anymore. Well, but it's not Jonathan's. mine. But well, John has his about 160. But uh, I always like to tell people there, there are 160 highly paid. So it's the equivalent of, of 200 odd people in your in your local economy. And the way that you help people get jobs, we were talking about that before we came into the studio today. Um, everybody knows who you are when you come in here. Um, and in fact, Jessica, who did all of the organising today. You saw her somewhere else and thought, I know where well, you can work. I did. Well, I, I've done that many times in my life, but uh, Jessica, who's in charge of this studio here, was a student until about three years ago. And in her weekends, she worked in a local restaurant here mm -hmm. called Art Bar Funkel, which is a very fond place for Carmen. I, we just love their food in it and the casualness of it. And... Um, we always talk to all the waiters and waitresses and say, and, uh, and then we would say, oh, that's a good one. In fact, Jonathan's wife, <laughs> I'm going to say it to you, this is an awful word to phrase, we picked her up picked her as, her a waitress, <laughs> as a waitress. And said, I've got just the man for so, you. No, that's not what had happened at the time. We brought Jonathan in and we brought uh, Jonathan into the Squires restaurant bars it was at the time. And uh, we used to admire her her pluck and her determination and she was going on and she was going to be an air hostess yeah. and we said god that's great that's the kind of girl we like and the next thing Jonathan must overheard that and the next thing they're married well there you go well, that was a good choice and well, you love your daughter-in-law yeah yeah we're supposed to be here talking about your brand new whiskey uh, company which actually isn't new at all how do you jump from accident management to opening a whiskey distillery well uh, mainly because jonathan paid me for the last business uh, <laughs> if, I, if i hadn't had the money in my hand i, I might have said i'll live on my pension and i'll pay golf forever <laughs> but um the how do you do it well i think it's the parallel uh, life and the return to your roots I think it's a, mi a mixture of those. And the parallel life was that since I arrived in Uri, I turned myself into a historian. I have a passion from as young of, of, of history. And if you'd like, I'll tell you, I explain to people why you get passions like that. And in my case, I used to love sitting at the fireside with my mother talking to her, her girlfriends and them talking about, oh, before the war, he did such and such. And before this, and now he's over there. And They're and, the best stories. I love those too. And, and then I had a, a school day experience. You you do what you get pra uh, praised at. My father used to say that I was the best riser in the house, so I'd get up at four o'clock for you if you want, because my father said I was the best riser in this house. But I was in school one day, and we were coming up to confirmation, and the bishop came, and he would go around the classrooms and he gets to the confirmation class, and one would expect him to ask, ask you a question about uh, a piece out of the Bible or uh -huh. something, but... He came into our room 
with a train behind him. I don't mean a cloth, a train of cloth. I mean the headmaster and his own assistant and the parish priest all in a train. And they, he came out to our room and he said, Well, boys, when was the Battle of Hastings? Well, my hand shook up. Not another one in the room able to speak. 1066, dear Grace. And what happened? So I gave him a description of the Battle of Hastings, you see. And he was overawed with all this. And he says, And boy, how did you learn all this? I says, I saw it on the TV, your grace. And he walked away in disgust. Oh. <laughs> in 1956-55, you did not watch TV. Oh, no, honestly. He could not believe that television could be an educator. There you go. A lesson for him. Although... I was. I only realised this later. Why he walked away in disgust? Because I was basking in glory. I think the answer that was expected from me was Master McLaughlin told us. <coughs> Absolutely <laughs> yes, and the teacher would get a clip round so the ear. When I got to Newry, I was in my element, a lovely place to live in, and full of history. So County Down is widely regarded um, for its distilleries, and for those who don't know, um, you know Matt Darcy's was one of them. Well. I have so much information about Sarah. I wrote a book you did. called Matt Darcy's and Old Newry Whiskies. And by the time I that finished, uh, yes, I researched every possibility of uh, whiskey production in the area. But I was led into the idea, uh, mainly I would say, buoyed up by the fact that I had just been the, pre- the president of the Chamber of Commerce and realised that the council needed help because the council had made a wonderful plan for the future to develop the area in tourism, restoration of a streetscape, mm-hmm. employment, and something with an export angle to it. And I thought, I've got the proper, the perfect project for that. Resurrect one of the old businesses, and I know a wee bit about Irish whiskey. A wee bit. I grew up uh, surrounded by barrels of Irish whiskey and my father blending and... Yeah. Uh, reducing whiskey and bottling it and we labelled it and we carried it round to the pubs and all that so I grew up in all of that and I thought well I need to pick on a, a good heritage mm-hmm. I read a book about how to market whiskey and by an American guru and the first paragraph of the first chapter of the first page said tell me your story and I will sell your whiskey Oh, I said, no, never mind making the whiskey. I need to get the story. <laughs> so I started to search for the story. And the first sort of inspiration hit me. I often tell this. Was, I was in a, in a restaurant in uh, oh, Fitzpatrick's nearby, and I saw mirrors for different Newry whiskies. And I thought, right, I'm going to build one of those brands. I'm going to bring it back to where it came from, or where it started like. And that's what, what gave me the inspiration. Um, it has taken me quite a while because when I did the research, I discovered the site of the oldest, the oldest distillery in Newry, the old distillery in Monon Street in Newry. And I set about trying to find a space on it. And I went to the owners to see could I rent a derelict yard and an old building. 18 months it took me, and I had to buy the whole lot. Oh, right. 18 months of negotiating and whatever till I bought the whole lot. Then, because it was such a peculiar uh, trade to bring into the middle of a town again, 
a distillery in the middle of the town. It then took another 12 to 14 months to get through planning permission. Even with the best of help from the local council, the council bent over backwards for me. But all the outside agencies caused the difficulties, you know, the traffic branch of this and uh, the DOEs, environmental people. So that's, that's so just... So where are we at at so, the minute? So it then took me another year to get the building control through because it's full of oh. fire regulations, da 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 da, and they all were finished last January. And so, then? And then COVID hit, yeah. and I thought, Michael, you've been blessed all your life. Thanks be to goodness you've taken you this long to get this far. Otherwise, you'd have a lovely big shiny business there. With no people to come and to. No d- doors locked, nothing yeah. you can do on it. So, But you can buy the whiskey. Where can you get the whiskey? Well, what we did is we went back to. Uh, the tradition that had existed with some of the whiskey companies in in Uri, where they were uh, blenders. Mm-hmm. So, so we you weren't distilling the whiskey. They weren't. They were. They were, they were blending. Yeah, the Darcy's were distillers, uh, which is why I root, went back to them rather than any of the other names that are well known here, like Thompsons and Duncan Alderdice. And uh, I went back to find out who was the last man who held a distiller's license in Uri, and that's the firm I'm going to be. Yeah, and you're going to get there at some point, but not well, just yet. Well, let's hopefully this next twelve months we'll right. see it out. Yeah. The tenders are now going out in January 2021, and hopefully there'll be a structure in place for Christmas of 2021. Well, let's hope so. Absolutely. At the minute, where can people find the whiskey, um, and how would you say we should best enjoy it? Well. Two questions to answer there was we had a, a rather good November, December because we began to p- promote it in November, December and we have it uh, listed in about 70 off licences. The pub is being closed but s- um, some of the hotels have taken it in and restaurants uh, to provide Irish whiskies with Old Newry whiskey in it. Old Newry being the oldest licensed manufacturer of whiskey in the world uh, but the local people have, have jumped to support that and um, other hotelier groups uh, are taking it in now to help us promote it so off licences and when pubs open properly uh, the, the pubs will be the place uh, our hope during this year is, is to get into international markets we're uh, planning now to get into the USA and we've had inquiries from uh, uh, Germany and Holland and France, uh, so and the let's Irish whiskey is really well. Irish popular. whiskey, like literally doubled inside the last ten years, and the predictions from those people right in the heart of the industry is that we're only coming up the curve, and that in another ten years we'll see a similar doubling. Well, as history has shown with you, that's exactly where you always are, just ahead of the curve. So <laughs> well, I don't feel I'm as ahead as I was with the internet, but. Uh, no, you're definitely, the time is right for you. Um, mm. It's been an absolute pleasure, Michael, talking to you today. One final thought before we um, leave. What advice, because this is all about advice for people listening to this, thinking about maybe starting their own business, wondering how to grow their business, but wondering is it a risk too far? I'm hearing just go for it, but <laughs> tell me, what would you say to them? Uh, I've heard other other people on your podcast just saying go for it. Um I had a, an experience in my first uh, paid, well, that's a, my first property paid occupation, which was a school teacher. And um, I thought that I was relieving the family of uh, trying to keep too many of us in the one business. But I taught for three years and um, 
some of those uh, people I taught with did what I did, which was they listened to the conversations in the staff room about the wonderful ideas that individuals had and thought, he's never going to do that. I'm going to do it. Right. So there's a div- dividing line between talking about something and getting into it. And I, I suppose one of the things that I've discovered from Crash is that younger people's brains aren't developed well enough. They, can't, they don't see risk. So it's easier to get started when you're younger because... Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose and you just jump into it. Um, but even at that, I was like uh, 69 years of age and I jumped into this. I'm now 74. And uh, there's days I think, why did I do that? <laughs> and there's other days I think, you know what? I know too many people who retire and they die within the year. Mm-hmm. I say, so I ain't going to be dying within the year. I'm going to keep myself busy. Um, so back to the advice. The advice is, is get on with it. And you see, even if it's wrong, something else will crop up. One of those great old phrases is, is about opportunities. Opportunities are doors in a corridor. And if you're not walking down the corridor, you can't see what doors open. <laughs> Michael McKeown, thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, folks, hope you enjoyed that at home. Lots of life lessons in there. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our participants for taking part. And thank you so much to the Granite Podcast team for making it all possible. That's it for me for now. Stay tuned for more exciting content. Bye-bye. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.